welcome to Pink Noise. I am your host, Barry Sherry. Today, like every day, I've recorded my show on board a floating home that I rent with my partner in Seattle, Washington. I would like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral lands of the Duwamish people, past and present. Today's guest is Dr. Jessica Tataro. And if you've listened to my shows before, you'll likely not be surprised that we traverse a wide expanse of content. We begin by diving into a story inspired by her own work as an intimacy coach and follow that thread through the first half of the program because I was so engaged as she described her journey of discovering her own sexuality and how that gave her access to revealing her gift as a truth teller. Somehow we managed to dance our way to the topic of racial justice and collective grieving. Grieving for traumas caused by our white-bodied ancestors. I'm still learning about this process, and you'll hear me admit my resistance to it later in the show. I hope you stay tuned. And now, let's jump in. I'm happy to have you here on Pink Noise. I'm happy to be here. So I was listening to Under 10, a podcast about intimacy. And there was this episode that I was listening to in the car with my partner. And I love this idea of using timer for a makeout. So we spend this day skiing and I hadn't, full disclosure, I hadn't downhill skied in almost 25 years. So I was really nervous about my body and whether or not I'd even be strong enough to you know, go down the mountain and then go back up and wanna do it again and again and again and again and make the lift ticket worthwhile. What I discovered is I remembered how much I loved skiing (laughs) and what a joy it is to be outside in nature with that amazing fresh air on the mountaintops and swooshing down the slopes. And I couldn't believe how quickly it came back to me. And so here we were now after lunch, eight runs in, and we're talking about going back up one of the bigger lifts. And uh, we parted ways with his son, who's a stronger skier and loves to do the black diamond. So we were still playing on the blue run. And as we get off the lift, I said, let's go find some trees and make out. (laughs) (laughs) And so we did. And when we pulled off and we got out of our skis and we walked over to where sun was shining between some trees off the path, I said, how about we set a timer? Nice. <laughs> and we set a timer for our makeout and we just lied in the snow and smooched and it was so cute. And we had our, you know, our snow gear on, but the stealing away that moment of intimacy, you know, people were going down the mountain way over there. They couldn't see us. And we were just having this exquisite quality time. And when the timer went off, neither of us were ready for it to be over, but we remembered your words. Yes. And I'd, I'd love for you to just say again, why that, why honoring the timer is so important. Happy to do it. I, you know, you're, your audio listeners are missing out because I can see your face and it's so um, 
it's really delightful to see your joy and see you cover your mouth with your hands like a kind of naughty, being caught in a naughty act that you um, you and your fiance uh, huddled in the trees and had a little make out between ski runs. Um, so, um, so, so sweet to hear that you immediately put to practice my suggestion in my podcast, which of course, as you said, is an intimacy podcast of 10 minutes or less weekly shorts that come out and each week has a homework an action step or steps that I encourage listeners to try. The premise of the entire podcast is intimacy is something that everyone can learn, like a language or uh, an instrument or a martial art, something that takes practice and with practice uh, opens up and becomes fluent uh, or more fluent. So every week has a practice, and this week's uh, title of the episode was How Using a Timer Can Be Sexy. And so I actually spent about half the episode talking about using a timer, not for makeouts, but around the kind of things in life that are a little scary. It could be like a task you don't want to do, like this month I had to finish my taxes. And I did time contain because I was like, Ugh. I don't want to do this on my Saturday, but can I do it for an hour? Yes, I can do it for an hour. And I set a timer. Um, also, how using a timer can be super helpful for non-sexual connection that takes a lot of vulnerability. Like, wow, we as a couple always avoid this particular topic. Um, and we need to talk about it. Can we talk about it for 15 minutes or 30 minutes? Um, it's hard to think, oh my gosh, we're going to be here forever. I, I got to keep my heart open for who knows how long. No. Can we talk about it for, you know, 30 minutes? So the idea of the timer is a little hack um, to help us do the scary things. Um, and, you know, what happens when we don't know how long we're going to be somewhere is that our defenses get loud. Our anticipatory mind gets loud and we can't be present. Um, so in our sexual connection, and I mostly call it sexy time, right? Sexy time can be cuddling with clothes on. Sexy time can be holding hands and eye gazing. Um, you know, it could be um, deep breaths together, okay? Could be a makeout, could be sex. Sexy time, you know, defined by you. Um, but the idea of using a timer for sexy time is that the question of, What's gonna happen? How long are we gonna be here? Do they want more than I do? Do I want more than they do? Are they enjoying it, right? Like raise your hand wherever you are. If these thoughts go through your head too, there's very few people for whom they don't. Okay, what happens between our ears usually is more, um, you know, plays a bigger part than what happens between our legs in terms of creating healthy sexual and sensual connection. So all these thoughts going through the head means it's a little harder to drop into the body. It's a little harder to even receive the touch of our partner's warm breath against your cold face, right? I can imagine in the snow how nice that was, the temperature. Um, it's hard to be there. And more than ever in life, from my perspective, uh, we have the opportunity to be present in the things that nourish us, that uplift us, that fulfill us, that energize us, that inspire us, that relax us, just relax us, okay? Body time, touch time is such a powerful way to down-regulate the body, to say to the body, 
You're safe. It's okay. We can't guarantee what's going to happen in the next minute, but right now we've got each other. So when we set the timer, the brain gets the opportunity to quiet because you know exactly how long you're going to be there. You have one piece of factual, concrete knowing, right? There's less uncertainty. I don't know about you, for the most part, my sexy time is variable, can be longer, can be shorter, right? It's, it's something that isn't, doesn't have a, a typical containment. So when we set the timer, it's also like, oh, here's this unique thing. So it's this trick and the mind behaves when it knows there's limited time. The mind behaves when it's not indefinite, when it's not like endless amount of space and choices and so on. No, when we have that oh, barrier to push up against, we land in our senses and in our bodies. So the reason your question, why is it important to respect the ding, as I put it in the podcast, is because what you've done there is made an agreement with yourself. You've actually set a boundary for yourself and your partner. You've said, this timer, I'm going to respect it because it's going to benefit my brain. It's going to benefit our connection. It's going to help tame this thing that's so hard to tame. I, I, I find my brain is hard to tame. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm working with it in particular ways these days. You know, it's like wild, feral beast that's just like, oh, you know, foaming and hissing. And, you know, so how do I tame this wild beast that it gets out of my way so I can have the life I want? Oh, well, when I respect the boundary, when we overstep the ding, oh, honey, just five more minutes. Oh, I just want to go a little further. What happens is we disrespect some something in ourselves that will erode the benefit. So I have trained a number of couples in timed sexual practices over the years. And inevitably, I'll have a couple who, after I give them the speech about respecting the ding, don't. And at first they say, oh my gosh, we've had so much benefit from this practice. Our sex is hotter, our connection is brighter and kinder. Inevitably, if they didn't respect the ding, um, they're worse off a couple weeks into it than when they started. Because there's something about containment that kind of right sizes the, the potency of the force of our connection. And if it's not right sized, the worst parts of, of, of our, our relational bodies will come out. We'll resent the other person because we've disrespected ourselves because we made a commitment in here to only make out for 15 minutes, okay? So when we contain that thing, we leave ourselves wanting more. That's what you want in every part of your life really, right? That, that feeling of like, oh, yearning continued hunger. I'm not gorging. It's actually a discipline, okay? You know, we think, oh, I'm happy when I'm just on the beach drinking margaritas, you know, for the rest of my life. But it, it's really not happiness that that creates. It's very interesting. The, the interesting studies about happiness versus contentment and fun versus contentment and so on. But I am of the belief that what we really crave is a uh, like a self-respect, uh, a sense that I am in, in integrity with myself. It creates contain, it creates contentment and it creates self, it, it generates and bolsters self-esteem. And that's sexy. It's not just like uninhibited sexual uh, hunger that's sexy. 
it's the something to push up against in ourself and outside of ourselves. All right, so that's my longer answer to your question. Something I'm getting from that is the importance of the, the trust factor too. Like trusting yourself and trusting your partner, trusting the relationship to honor the things they said, like at the beginning, how long do you want for whatever kind of connection you're gonna have? And then respecting the ding, honoring the ding is really just another way of saying, hey, like we're gonna do the thing we said we were gonna do. That's right. And then you kind of get to put a marble in the marble jar. That's right. Yeah. Um, I can remember in past relationships, not honoring the thing we said and watching our relationship trust erode and dissolve. Yes, we need rails. One of the things I say in the podcast is lacking more social events outside of our homes. We do run the risk of being awash in a day where we have no social rails. You know, I used to drive to town to go to my office and then I'd have a yoga class in the community and I might attend an event in the evening. I have none of that now. So I have to artificially create uh, those kind of accountability rails. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a unique time. So I think this practice more than ever, the idea of kind of chunking time, putting barriers on time, uh, in order to kind of help our own kind of daily focus and discipline, but also the trust in our relationships is really a helpful tool. Yeah. How did you become an intimacy coach? I am trained as a psychologist. My PhD is in uh, clinical psychology and my, my focus actually in my research and my graduate training was in medicine, was in health. So I did all my training in uh, medical centers uh, in a previous lifetime. Uh, my research was on the cancer experience and meaning making essentially for cancer survivors. And I, I worked with um, folks who had chronic pain or who were had had um, various uh, surgeries. I worked at a rehab hospital. And then I worked with veterans for three years on my internship in California. And then the first two years of my career as a psychologist, I was at the Austin VA, uh, the mental health clinic. Um, I currently live up here in Washington, but my, my family and the, my start in life was in Texas. So I went back to Texas to work in Austin as a VA psychologist. This was 2009. And uh, I, I did do well there as, as well as I do. And as much as I love being a connection facilitator and an intimacy coach, uh, I loved working with veterans. I didn't love working for the VA, but I really loved uh, my patients. And I worked in a substance abuse treatment center and I was teaching um, spirituality as a resource for vets. Pretty much the clinic was pretty open. They were very receptive to my ideas. It, it was, um, they were pretty much like, if it works, you can do it. They were just deluged with uh, populations of all genders who needed help. And 
my groups ended up being popular. Anyway, in 2011, the VA ran out of money for my position. So it's very interesting because I actually didn't leave the VA by choice. I left because my position ended. And that was the beginning of how I became an intimacy coach. So it was November of 2011. And uh, we had this big, sad goodbye because I had very deep relationships with staff and patients alike. So it was sad. And I went to India with a partner and traveled a bit and kind of went, okay, I'm unemployed now for the first time in like ever, you know, in terms of I'd been in school for like 26 years and then went straight into my career. Who am I and what do I want? And my first answer was, I want to date again. I did break up with this partner I traveled with. I want to date again. And I, I, I want to, uh, maybe dive into kind of learning more about myself as a sexual creature, which up to that point, I didn't talk to my clients about sex or sexuality or anything about their intimate lives. And if they'd asked me, I think I would have uh, cringed in horror. I it just, you know, I went all the way through my training to the topmost degree that one can get as a, in, in psychology without uh, learning how to talk about sex, which according to studies on patients' uh, concerns, is the topmost concern is sexual dysfunction. Okay, so I didn't ask about it, didn't talk about it. And that was because I didn't know how to talk about it in my own life. And I'd had a series of uh, kind of serial monogamy, uh, you know, monogamous relationships. My personal life was fine, not great, but I had no trouble finding partners. So it was around that time that I pivoted. So I was working with a, a company in San Francisco. They were had done some outreach in Austin. And I was learning how to inhabit my body, whereas I'd spent most of my life inhabiting my mind uh, up to that point. I was learning how to have it, inhabit my body. And I'd done a lot of therapy by that point. And so I, I, I had done some of my grief work, but I hadn't included my, um, my sexual body. So it was like a missing piece. And uh, the VA called me later in the year and they said, oh, we can refund your position, come back. And I said, I can't, I'm having too much fun. <laughs> um, so I, I decided to go ahead and train to be an intimacy coach because I, I was finding that the, I, I'd always known I wanted to help people and that being able to talk about intimacy, frankly, about sexuality, frankly, created a, a, a capacity to be more penetrating. And I felt like as a psychologist, I didn't know how to be penetrating. I knew how to kind of manage people, but I don't think I knew how to speak what was true. And it was actually in connection to my sexuality that I got connection to my truth teller, my truth telling. And I, I tell you, that's what I do with my clients. That's probably one of the main offerings that I think I can say that is unique to my practice is I practice truth-telling to my clients. I tell them what I see, you know, we, within relationships of trust and rapport and so on. So that was 2012-ish. So I became an intimacy coach and went into private practice and ended up traveling a bit more. I was based in San Francisco for a while. I was based in Dallas for another four years. Um, and, and here I am today. I'm just not done with this story <clears throat> of how you got in touch with your, your body and you started 
It sounds like listening to your body or understanding your sexuality, and that gave you a voice to your truth. Right. Can you unpack that a little more for me? I'm, I'm just like on the edge of my seat. Sure. Well, I think without going into some details that are best left for another episode, the idea here is that, you know, here we have a body head, head to toe. I talk about this in one of my podcasts, but most people don't have a relationship in the same way that we can kind of feel our fingers or toes or knees or elbow with our genitals. So I see this all the time in um, guided body scans. Feel your head, feel your breath, feel your belly, feel your thighs, feel your knees, notice your calves, okay? So it's a skip. Like we don't have the highest concentration of nerve endings between our legs, you know, compared to anywhere else in the body. It's like this, we, we, we pretend. And it's not, it's, it's even a, not even knowing that we're skipping. We're skipping and then we've forgotten that we're skipping, right? People don't think twice. I think twice. And when I lead guided body scans, I say, notice your genitals, notice your thighs, notice your knees, right? It's body part, it's body part. So it's not just any body part, of course. Uh, there's a lot of stigma connected to sex in general. There's a lot of uh, trauma and pain connected to, uh, unfortunately, sex um, for a lot of folks. And so there's a lot of reasons why we might take great, great, great care um, in talking about um, sexuality and specifically sexual body parts. But I think that there's ultimately a disservice. So when we don't feel a part of our bodies, what we're essentially doing is called dissociation. I was just reading yesterday an article that was talking about what dissociation looks like in the brain. Um, so it's a disconnection, it's a protective mechanism where we don't feel ourselves in a moment. And over time we habituate to not feeling ourselves or parts of ourselves. And in the brain, what that looks like is like a gap. It's a, where there would be activity, there is kind of a pixelated area where there's lesser activity. There's lesser life force neurologically speaking. So it's a profound, pervasive dissociation from the sex organs. And I learned how to reassociate with mine. And in so doing, it's like I plopped myself back in my body. I'd done a ton of personal work up to that point. Uh, I trained to be a yoga teacher and I traveled to India and I'd done sweat lodges and I'd done a lot of therapy. Um, I'd done a lot of work to ready myself to receive the benefit and also to sort of, um, for the most part, safely drop into my sexual body, um, which is uh, a big move. You know, you want to make sure that if someone's supporting you to do this work, that they're trauma informed um, and, and trustworthy. Um, but it was a, like a completing of a piece of the puzzle that had a big gap that happened for me. And I guess the last thing I'll say is that the sexual center and the language center are very connected. In fact, they really need to be connected for, for healthy sex lives, right? I need to be able to say, uh, would you slow down? Or would you touch me in this way? Or can we do this? Or I wanna make out for 15 minutes, right? And that vocal center and sexual center connection is broken for a lot of folks and especially women and femme folks. Um, 
consent is something that I teach about a lot. Consent in dance spaces, consent in, in group events, consent certainly in, in personal intimacy. So it's it, it really was an exciting turn in my life and I, I've been teaching from it uh, ever since. And you know, teaching intimacy is not just about sexuality. In fact, the majority of my clients, we don't focus on sexuality, but it's knowing that that's a part of us that can then inform and empower all the conversations about intimate relating. When you speak about the importance of being in your body, having language for asking for what you want, naming your genitals as part of who you are. Just yesterday, I was doing an exercise for Catherine Liggett's shadow work class <clears throat> called Becoming Bold. And in the exercise, we were asked to think of a memory from our childhood when we didn't get our emotional needs met. And in my meditation, what I found surprised me because it took me back to the playground of an elementary school where I was humiliated and ridiculed. There was a book that was being read and in the book, um, body parts were named and I was asked to read this part aloud and because body parts weren't used, weren't referenced in my home and there hadn't been any health education so that I had heard the words, right. I mispronounced them. Ugh. Then she, this girl had me read it in front of a larger audience at recess. Oh my. So tracking back to like what that does for a young person, and that's just like a micro moment right. that leaves this impression on, um, mm. you know, you you better be more more read, more educated. Right. Don't sort of find yourself in that position again. That's that's uncomfortable and painful. Oh, thank you for your vulnerability and and sharing that story. I, I couldn't like six different levels. Um, um, the combination of you being bullied, what I hear, the combination of you being shamed, and then the specifically around um, sex or sexy body parts. Um, it's, you know, I don't know too many people who did have that education as, as, uh, as kids, though I will say the Pacific Northwest has some amazing movements around parenting. So uh, I think it does exist. I know it does exist up here, um, but I didn't as well. Um, I, I was raised Catholic. My parents were openly affectionate, um, but well, it's a long story a little bit. My mother died when I was young and, and after her death, especially, there was so much dysfunction. There was not enough kind of coherence in the family for there to be uh, any safe conversations, let alone about sex. Though I think had she lived, it would have been different because she, she really was a, a, a brave, she was very committed to child education. Um, but I do think it's, it's really the exception where someone has the resilience from their family of origin to come into a moment like you had with that girl and just to say, um, it's okay that I don't know how to say this. Let's have a conversation or let's bring some adults in or, you know, and where were the adults in that moment anyway? 
Um, so, you know, and the thing is the adults don't know how to talk about it, right? All these adults are disconnected from their own sex organ, right? So it's just like, oh, let's not, you know, anyway, or let's not talk about that or just be nice to each other, right? Which teaches us there must be something wrong with every with what just happened, right? We, we take our cues from the adults. So I, I think these stories are so, so, so common and over time they accumulate and we result in adults that don't know how to say, would you slow down? Or can we make out for five minutes? To assert a desire is a very specific, very important um, practice and seems very out of reach for many. So it, it's, I, I, it's really a joy to do what I do because I, I find myself now that I focus on intimacy as a coach and I did leave the world of professional psychology and kind of position myself in a, in a, in a related but different discipline. What I find is that I'm, I'm able to say things that um, most people are dying to have said, you know, and say them in a responsible way. I, I keep a very strong grounding in my own body and keep a very strong grounding and help my clients track their inhabiting of their bodies, right? Scary things makes up, make us want to check out. Here comes the dissociation. But if we can go, okay, let's slow down. Let's take another breath and just notice what's happening. Um, I haven't taught a group sexuality class for a while, but when I do, I have three main rules and I put them in a big poster board right above my head and I start the class like this. Okay, three main rules. Number one, slow down. Number two, slow down some more. Number three, slow all the way down. Because it's in the slowing down that we begin to actually recontact the parts that got stuck. And that's where we get our vitality back for every, every bedroom in the house, uh, as far as our intimacy goes. And I'm hearing a real priority put on accessing language to then express what it is you're noticing with your partner and being in that moment of awareness. So slowing down is for you to create the, the knowledge of what you're feeling right and then how do you learn how do you find is it is it courage like to the vulnerability to then share it share what you're noticing with your partner and and you and I met in in the space of you leading your own speak up which how would you describe it Speak Up is the Conscious Connection Games Night that I started in 2015 that I, I lead now up here and online. And it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a weaving together of certainly authentic relating, embodiment, group process, trauma sensitivity, lots and lots of play. Um, yes, it's my brand or my version of uh, uh, Conscious Connection. Um, we've been circling as well. So I've been informed by these movements and, and then, uh, you know, and certainly intimacy principles. Um, how to be able to have the whatever it is so that we can find our voice. That's your question. Yeah. It is. That is my question. Yeah. Well, you know, you're taking a class on shadow work. Probably your listeners are, are savvy folks who do a lot of personal growth work. I, I take a fairly practical approach to this. I, I think a lot of personal growth work can feel abstract 
and 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 it is in a, in an important way, right? Our internal relationship. We can't per se touch it, but I I t I like to make it more concrete. So what I teach and practice is low stakes uh, incubators, where we do the practice in moments of lesser intensity. That's what we do at Speak Up. That's what I do with my clients. That's what I do with like my personal growth practices is to be able to say to someone who's not my partner uh, in real time, oh, I you know, notice my feet are warm, seems small. Uh, I notice I, my mouth is dry. I notice I checked out there. Um, I notice my hands are clammy. Uh, to do a noticing, um, which you are very familiar with, I'm very familiar with, with someone who's a practice partner in a drop-in community games night, begins to hone a muscle. The other person um, is not needing me to sound or look a certain way. The other person is not needing me to assure them of something. There's no, there's no stakes. There's no, there's no major skin in the game like there is with our intimate partners, right? With all the history and all the significance and they're so important to me. And if I, you know, rupture this relationship, I'll be alone and I, I have to make this work and da, 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 and all the pressure and so on. So I say reps, which is a term that Resma Menachem uses. And I might've heard it before, but I think the way he uses it, the, the author of My Grandmother's Hands, which is a body-based uh, program for unlearning and healing racism. He talks about doing reps and that's in a different context, but it's, it's all, what it's got in common is to inhabit the body to reassociate, right? If dissociation takes us away, associate or reassociate brings us back. So I have people, I just a couple of weeks ago did a speak up. So speak up is every other Wednesday and we have different themes every time. And I just did a speak up on consent, which was very well attended. I had a, a lot of folks come, no accident. It's something, it seems that there's a collective need for and curiosity in. And I had folks practice with pairs of people, you know, and, and in, in no cases were they their own intimate partner, uh, saying and saying no. So one person would say, you know, would you give me a hundred bucks? And the other person would say, no, thank you, or just no. And then the response is, thank you for taking care of yourself, but really, really low stakes. I was just reading an article on cuddle parties. And I've attended, and you might be familiar with it, and your listeners might know. And cuddle parties are designed to help teach consent. But you know that there's a prospect of cuddling <laughs> that's like on the other side of learning the practice. Cuddling with strangers and not knowing much else about them and so on, which is very intimate. I think that's not a good starting point. I, I, don't, I, won't, I wouldn't have people start there. I have them start with the practice that's an imaginary, oh, would you hug me? Or can I spoon you? And we're sitting across from a, each other from a screen. So there's no, that's not going to be actualized. And then I get the opportunity to say, no, thank you, without the stakes of having to reject someone actually in real time. I think that's how we learn. I think if we weren't such a traumatized population around intimacy, there might be a smoother, uh, simpler pathways. But uh, what I've found in my own body and then with folks I work with is that we have to have enough muscle tone built in low stakes moment to be able to have uh, literally the muscle memory in the moments when we most need it. Where do you think we 
unlearned our connection to our body. Woo. <laughs> well, leaving the body is actually an intelligent adaptation in unsafe circumstances. Staying out of the body, however, is unsustainable. But where we needed to, to protect ourselves in our formative years, for whatever reason, people could have had very, very well-meaning adults around them uh, and still have had to protect themselves in such a way that that intelligent adaptation kicked in. I tend to work with folks who are highly emotionally sensitive, which I think most people are, are emotionally sensitive creatures. Um, and uh, so, but I, I tend to get in, in my practice, very creative folks and folks for whom their level of sensitivity as children didn't match the environments they were in. Right? The need to be able to cry uh, at a, on a rainy day, right? The, the, the ability to feel the fullness of life as a child, which I, I advocate for as an adult, to feel the, the fullness and the poignant, sweet, painful wonder, you know, every day. And, and in the pressures that happen and the, the, the economic pressures and the, you know, relational pressures, there's so little uh, support that so many adults get and, and never you mind if they had to be single parents. Uh, so that the, the misattunement really was part of a larger system of families not having the support they need. So I don't hold parents at large as bad. I think we have a, an enormous cultural gap and oversight in terms of emotional uh, intelligence and attuning to children. Um, and so I, I think that that's uh, a, a fairly common experience to get into adulthood and no, not know how to turn off the mechanism that grew from need, but now is no longer needed and now is actually serving to undermine a person's ability to uh, have a vitalized life. It's, it's complex. Uh, but that's maybe a simplified uh, version. Thanks. Yeah. I seem to mm. be having a lot of conversations around relearning. Like getting back to the curiosity of a child without judgment and assumptions before we knew how to label and damn people and populations and experiences as being good or bad. There seems to be a lot there. Well, there's a piece I can comment there if you're open. So we're talking about, you know, uh, forgetting basically, kind of forgetting how to be in our bodies. And I, I, you know, you and I are also doing anti-racist work in one of our groups, and we're talking about white supremacy as in the air and water of our culture. The idea that the white body is the supreme body against which all other bodies are measured. So anything different from that is less than white supremacy. And so this dissociation uh, epidemic dissociation, I think, has a lot to do with the way that white supremacy has 
infiltrated and infected our knowledge of ourselves and our safety in the world. And if we're always trying to fit within a narrow idea of what is like safe and good, and we know for certain that anything less than that is going to be not just like demeaned, but possibly executed. I mean, we're talking about truly a survival, a question of survival. Um, then, uh, then we will hide. And you know, I, I mentioned Resma Menachem. My book is my my laptop is actually propped up on his book, so I'm like looking at his name. So funny. It's it's a pretty nice metaphor. Um, but he talks about the history of white on white trauma and persecution and, and uh, in, in Europe before the white uh, colonial uh, uh, settlers came to this continent. And so it's like an, an inheritance of trauma that then got that then became white on you know people of color, white on indigenous, uh, white on white, certainly uh, as well. Okay, so all of this is to say the remembering I've come to believe isn't complete without considering race and our positionality, as some of my mentors call it. I've been working with the group uh, Holistic Resistance with um, Portia Bede and Aaron Johnson and that team, and they're based in California. And they've really helped me as a white woman. My ancestry is Jewish, my skin is white, um, as a white woman to figure out how do I integrate a race consciousness in my work to remember? Because I'm pretty certain that I've dedicated my life, whether it was in professional psychology, now in relationship work and intimacy coaching, I'm pretty sure I've dedicated my life to reclaiming my vitality and helping others around me do that. And not just one-on-one, -on -one, but as you know, my specialty is working with groups of people. Um, and I, I'm really coming to believe that it will always be incomplete and insufficient without adopting a, an anti-oppression lens. That this has played a huge part in stealing our vitality as humans, including white humans. And that in order to show up as allies, genuine accomplices for people of color, I believe we have to grieve. This is some of my answer to the question of, you know, how do we show back up in our bodies? So uh, I've talked to you a little bit about my writing about grieving um, and, and my own personal grief practice is only as a practice, like as a dedicated practice, it's only three years old. Um, but, in, but what grief I believe does is crack open those parts of us that got sealed shut and grief cracks it open um, with its antidote, which is feeling. Uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest, as you probably know, there are grief tenders. There are leaders who lead communities, who gather people together in circles when we can be in person, and it's been online since the pandemic, where we tend to our grief. And that can sound like the most oh my gosh, threatening, horrifying, scary thing to most people. Um, and I've tried to kind of, um, you know, make it less threatening to folks who I've invited. But the idea is basically, we will be in a space and take all the measures and do all the grounding and do all the blessings so that it's safe for a big grief to arise. So I've been doing uh, online grief circles now this past year, I've done three, I think. 
And I just wrote the grief tenders recently. And I said, can we do a more advanced grief circle? Like I I'd like to like notch it up a little bit because I, 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 I feel aware Sherry, as I'm doing some of my own continued grieving, I mentioned my mother died when I was young um, and I've had adult traumas as well. So I, 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 I know grief. Well, I know sadness. Well, I feel it most days, some quality of it and I'm grateful for it. Um, and I also know that in order to be able to metabolize the big feelings, to not drown in them, to, be able to engage in the world as I wish, to engage with my husband as I wish, to be present as a teacher, that I, I really can't do it by myself. I think white supremacy tells us we've got to figure it out alone. And our psychology is ours and ours alone to be responsible for. And I, I really am coming to believe that that's one of the most uh, dastardly lies perpetuated by this system of white supremacy that we, we can't, that to rob us of the collective and to rob us of the knowledge that our strength comes from the collective. So when we grieve together, we say no to that idea that we have to do it alone. We say no that we are responsible alone to hold these unwieldy burdens. So I, I have really come to know and believe, certainly firsthand, that when I collectivize my grief, when I communalize my grief, that on the other side of it, I become a more remembered human inside of myself. I have more of me available. So I, I really am a, an a, you know, it all feels connected. To me, that's an intimacy principle. It's intimacy with self, it's intimacy with world, it's intimacy with past, present, and future. Um, the, the communal grieving is a profoundly needed um, gift for our, our, our modern bodies and hearts. I love that you're sharing this with me. I feel like I'm just catching up. Uh, I'm just catching up to when you said, I'm grateful, I'm grateful for the lessons that grief gives me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you more about that. And as you continue to talk about the collective grieving process and the critical role that it plays in healing ourselves and healing, maybe even the lens in which we view other races on this planet and the unitedness of us as collective beings here on earth, it, it expanded the importance of grieving to me. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've invited me to grief circles in the past through our, our group together on, on social justice. And <clears throat> I've resisted coming. And the excuse that's playing out in my head is the story of I don't have anything to grieve. Mm. It's the story of um, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, yep. I've, there's been some loved ones lost and, and it's a part of life. And I've, I've taken that pain and maybe I've stuffed it down somewhere. Think that I've dealt with it, but collective grieving. I, I feel like there's a lot more I need to learn about my role Mm. and and what might be there for me mm. to discover i think that's brave of you to name and i'm so glad you did i i i also resist going to the grief circles 
I go to them, but oh boy, like as they're approaching in time, I mean, when they were in person, I used to try to think of like every excuse I could, you know, come up with so that I I can't make it today, y'all. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I eventually go. And then when it comes up online, it just like how my thoughts start speeding up. I, I, I think that this whole stuffing down, I, I think we probably can't underestimate the degree to which we stuff down as, as part of our like passport to the mo- modern life. I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond even our ability to track how much we stuff. So many micro moments of discovering this world isn't safe in small and big ways. I can't feel those feelings. I can't be this self that I know myself to be. I can't be, you know, wild or big or intelligent or creative or zany or insightful or precocious or all the things that I imagine you were, I was, and so many people are. Um, and, And so all those moments of discovering, I can't feel that and the stuffing down, I, I think that resistance is, is, is aware of the enormity of what it means to call oneself on that. That resistance to really look at the enormity of the stuffing. It's, it's uh, I can't argue with that resistance. It's big work, um, but it's also work done with others. You know, I go to those circles and I look around, I go, go on, these people are brave. Okay, if they can do it, I can do it. That's really how it happens. If I can get my my butt in the door, then I look around me and I go, oh my God, their share was so revealing. Okay, all right, if they can do it, right? And then what we're doing is we're collectivizing the strength and the courage. We're collectivizing the tenacity, right? We're pooling the resources to be able to then, you know, together face what we each have to face. It's a, it's a deep journey. I, I don't advise it on our own, which is why these circles, you know, are so genius. Um, and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm grateful that we, we got here in this conversation. It's something I've been thinking about quite a lot because I, I, my, my research when I was in graduate school a lifetime ago was actually on spirituality in the cancer experience. It was basically what's known in psychology as post-traumatic growth, the growth that comes from pain, right? I talked about my gratitude for grief. I believe the grief is the mechanism between trauma and growth. I was just saying to a client yesterday who's, who's very dedicated to her work and she was talking about being in pain and she was like, I know it's gonna make me stronger. I said, wait, 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 it's not the pain alone that's gonna make you stronger. So hang on for a sec. It's the pain in the presence of the right support. It's the pain in the presence of you breathing a lot more than you're breathing now. It's the pain in the presence of witness that is going to make you stronger. Pain by itself is just going to hurt and possibly do damage. So pain in the presence of support, that's the equation. That's what yields the growth. That's what yields the insight. You know, I lost my mother when I was young. I learned to value in a way that I don't know if I might have before I saw that death can happen anytime. I learned to value what I had. And you know, not to say I live life mindfully every moment, but I have an indelible lesson inside of me that things I love can be taken away. An indelible lesson. You know why it's indelible? Because I've grieved my mother 
and it will continue to grieve her. I just did another round of grieving her recently. Grief is something I carry every day and will carry every year. Every milestone that happens in my life, I feel her loss newly. So it helps me be here. What a gift. Again, I believe that the grieving is the passageway for us to learn from the traumas. Some of the traumas that we're facing as modern humans, especially modern white humans whose ancestors perpetuated profound crimes are too big for us to really digest, right? The white fragility is really saying to us, whoa, how do I even begin to reckon with the, uh, with like the blood on my hands? Oh, we must do it together. Then we become the kind of smart white people who can change the world and make it safer for people of color. But we have to collectivize it. Otherwise we're gonna just keep dissociating and at the expense at the great expense of marginalized people in our worlds. So I actually believe it's a responsible thing to do to grieve. I really believe it helps us get our chops to be able to face the world we wanna change. The big word here for me is community. It's doing it together. And when you described your resistance to showing up in the grief circles, it reminded me of how I felt saying yes to our racial justice work together. Yes. And I was using this resistance to time, this most precious resource. How can I give up this amount of time mm. to do this open-ended work that has no SMART goals attached to it? And I'm reminded all the time in my meditations why all roads lead back to this work together, work together to realize how deep, how deep the pain is in, in our DNA, in our, in our white body DNA from generation of generation of generation to the ancestors who felt they were entitled to take from other bodies who were different than theirs. Right? And we wonder where self-loathing comes from. Right. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, let's just take a breath on that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so here's a collective, right? Sherry and Jessica. And we get to face each other and say, yeah, I have resistance to doing the social justice work. Yeah, I have resistance to doing the grief work. Yeah, I'm gonna let you see me in my resistance. So I have, I have just countered shame, right? Shame only works and only gets us when it's in, in, in the shadow. Oh, I've just put it in the light. Okay, yep, I have resistance. Now you know, and you're still smiling. So I get the sense that I've not been kind of kicked out of you know whatever this, this connection is. Um, so we, we get to kind of lean in all the parts we wanna hide, all the parts we believe are unlovable. Let's bring them. And let's really dare to challenge the story that there's any part of me that doesn't get to be loved, um, including the racist parts of me. Yes, let me bring all of my biases and all of my, uh, you know, all these thoughts that I have programmed in here about bodies of color, uh, bodies of culture, as Resma says. 
um, and let me admit them, right? Admit, the, admit, even like, it's like hard to access, but let me do the work to show myself the, 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 what's under the rocks of my psyche, right? If I really look and then with your help, be able to integrate, right? Forgive, grieve that I might have these kind of disconnecting thoughts inside, right? It's like being programmed against my will and yet, right? There's a great presentation that both you and I attended called Am I Racist, right? The important question. And that's actually just the starting point because the question is, what am I doing about it? Because if we're here, we have racism right, in our bodies, okay? So, so I, I've really learned, you know, I did a lot of anti-racist work in graduate school and then I put it down, which is part of white privilege to not make race important for a period of time when I was setting up my career and kind of recovering from burnout. In the past year and since George Floyd's murder, uh, I've picked it back up, as you know, and I've really come to believe here I am in my mid forties um, and really it's a kind of a maturing point in my career, really come to believe that, we, that as I integrate an, an awareness of myself as a racial creature and myself in a, in a racially divided world, and then do the work to grieve the enormity of these divides. I, I really, you know, you talked about a lack of smart goals, but it's like, I, I actually achieve the thing I've been after all along, which is getting parts of me back and then being able to be a really empowered and I believe effective advocate for, uh, you know, if you think about dissociation inside the body as a microcosm, but what racism does is dissociation at a cultural level. It's like, a, oh, I put on you parts of me I don't like, and I will cut you off, see? But when we take those parts of us that we don't like, we put them back in our own bodies, we just can see humans. We don't see difference equals bad. White supremacy loses. We have to do our personal work. Otherwise, we cannot participate as effective allies. We have to let ourselves break open, which is one of the topics of my podcast. We have to break in, break open, break down, but break through. I call it break open in order to love all these parts in here so that I can be present to my world, so that I can be an advocate for change. I'm having to hold my heart through that whole last, that whole last share of yours. Oh, I'm going to hold my heart too. It feels good to be talking about the big things. And I'm just grateful for your, your invitation to do so. Yeah. Yes. Well, may this interview be nourishment for each of our work and also the folks listening and in their work. I'm, I'm grateful, you know, that we're having these kind of out loud conversations because I think there is a hunger and I do believe that we are getting nourished in new ways. The pandemic has afforded a very unique opportunity where the needs are so highlighted um, and the nourishment is becoming more available. Thank you for that. Thank you for showing up, for setting aside this time to be with me on the radio. Mm, it was really a, a treat, Sherry. Thank you for inviting me. I love when one guest brings up key points from a past show. I'm connecting the dots from Heather Fantine in episode 21, talking about post-traumatic growth and the gifts of grief. 
I continue to learn buckets of wisdom from each of my guests. And I remain so grateful to Jeff and Cindy at Cafe Racer Radio for creating this space. I'd love to share my top three takeaways from today's program. First, to slow down and pay attention to my body, all parts of my body. There's important information to be found here. And two, that white-on-white trauma is real. And the system of white supremacy oppresses us to grieve alone. When we are collective beings born into a desire for belonging. And third, suffering is amplified when it remains in the dark. The way to face anything overwhelming is by inviting in a witness. From here, I'll continue to take steps, one at a time, to break open, as Jessica suggests. Shining light on my pain and processing my feelings out loud. I hope you join me. Comments are always welcome on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or SoundCloud, wherever you listen. My next guest is Serena Myers. She's a spiritual mentor, author, and transformational speaker. Her work is centered around the topic of expressing sacred anger. And if you really knew me, you'd know how much I value self-expression. Can't wait. Until then, keep mining and shining the gold within. <laughs>